Maria Lipman, Senior Associate to Poners, the program on new approaches to research and security in Eurasia. Welcome to our new Poners Eurasia podcast. This podcast will feature a series of discussions about Eurasia, about the region's politics, and about other Russia and Eurasia-related topics. Before introducing my team of experts, let me say a few words about our topic today. In mid-January, Russia embarked on what amounted to a major constitutional reform. The reform was proposed by President Putin himself, but he barely explained just why such a reform was needed, or what was wrong about Russia's formal political order. After all, that order remained practically unchanged since 1993 when the current constitution was adopted following the collapse of the Soviet Union. The proposed constitutional amendments were swiftly adopted by the federal and regional parliaments, as well as by the constitutional court. This caused outrage among legal experts. Some of them even referred to these amendments and the adoption procedure as a constitutional catastrophe or a constitutional coup. The amendments eventually concerned about four dozen articles of the Constitution, but the most important one appeared at the last moment and was proposed not by Putin personally. The person who proposed that amendment was the first woman astronaut, Valentina Tereshkova, a veteran member of various Soviet and post-Soviet government institutions. This amendment was nicknamed Zeroing and defined that when Putin's current presidential term expires in 2024, he can start his presidency as it were from scratch, a reset of sorts. And that would enable him to run again in 2024, in 2030, and for all practical purposes, This amendment thereby granted Putin a lifetime presidency. This new twist put an end to rising uncertainty over the configuration of power after 2024 and Putin's place in that configuration. It announced that there can be no lame duck situation for Putin. This move effectively reconsolidated stability and legitimacy of the Russian political regime. The only thing left was a final endorsement of the amendment by a popular vote. It was not a legal necessity. Actually, Putin himself announced that there should be a popular vote. Apparently, so the annulment or zeroing of his presidential tenure would bear the appearance of a popular will. There was no reason to doubt that the informal vote would endorse Putin's virtually eternal presidency. What seemed to lie ahead was the grand celebration on May 9 of the 75th anniversary of victory in the Great Patriotic War. During Putin's two decades in power, this event has been progressively framed as the pillar of the Russian national identity. And Putin was to preside over a military parade, a broad popular celebration, and to host international dignitaries. He certainly looked forward to it. All these plans were zeroed or annulled by the COVID pandemic. The popular vote scheduled for April 22 was canceled. The parade was canceled a little later or maybe postponed until safer times. Putin is a politician who has repeatedly demonstrated that he does not concede whether in the face of major disasters or terrorist attacks or under pressure of international economic sanctions but the coronavirus made him retreat. Russia is in for a dramatic economic downfall, impoverishment, and unemployment. 
Of course, other countries of the world face similar hardships, but Russia's situation is additionally exacerbated by a deep decline of the price of oil. Putin enjoys uncertainty. It is his signature style. But only if this uncertainty is of his own creation. He usually does not unveil his plans, leaving his elites to guess his will as the supreme elite ruler. But the current uncertainty has been imposed on him, and at this point, nobody can say what is in store. Putin's leap to eternity instantly became a deep dive into immediacy and uncertainty. Today we will discuss the Russian political situation with a brilliant team of scholars, Henry Hale of the Institute of European, Russian and Eurasian Studies of George Washington University, Ben Noble of the University College London, and Nikolai Petrov of Chatham House. Thank you all for joining me today. Even though the pandemic has overshadowed everything else, including the constitutional reform, I'd like to start with questions about the constitutional revisions. And my first question goes to Henry Hale. Henry, why did Putin need to revise the Constitution that has served him so well so far and enabled him to keep a firm grip of power for 20 years? What does it tell us about the nature of the Russian political system? Thank you, Masha. Um, I think the key is, as you mentioned, the issue of succession. Um, Putin's final term under the old version of the Constitution was set to expire in 2024, and he was already in his final term. And I think what's important to keep in mind is that uh, you know, this is not just something that is important on paper. If you look around at uh, other post-Soviet countries where revolutions have happened and presidents have been overthrown or their uh, attempts to hand off power thwarted, they have generally occurred in regimes like Russia's that have uh, strong presidentialist systems. Um, and they have occurred precisely when the president is a lame duck, as you mentioned, uh, and also is uh, suffering from low popularity. And almost all of the revolutions in the post-Soviet space since around 2000 have featured that basic pattern. And I think this is something that greatly threatens, uh, uh, you know, greatly concerns the Kremlin, including Putin. And so the biggest problem for Putin then was how to remove the lame duck syndrome. And it was clear that would probably like to do this one way or other. And uh, I think that uh, the reason that this happened now was because uh, the signs of succession beginning to manifest themselves last year uh, of 2019. We saw uh, massive protests, unrest, uh, the regime forced into a kind of crackdown and ultimately significant opposition victories for city council seats. And I think this has a lot to do with different forces within the country um, starting to position themselves for uh, the succession because pro elections prior to the ultimate presidential election for succession tend to become tests of strength for different groups, either among Putin supporters uh, who want to kind of compete for influence within the Kremlin camp or for opposition to try and demonstrate their strength and thereby uh, influence the uh, succession process. So uh, I think already by 2021, which is when the next Duma election uh, was scheduled, the Kremlin was starting to brace for a significant struggle. And so what I think Putin and company were trying to do was essentially to nip all this in the bud, at least as soon as possible before it could become a, a crisis for the regime. And so basically what was uh, happening was an effort to, you know, by uh, amending the constitution in a way that allowed Putin the right to run for a new term in 2024, he basically 
ended his status as a lame duck and thereby freed himself to make whatever decision he might want to make. I don't think it necessarily implies going to leave power in 2024. You know, maybe the smart money would, would bet on that. But uh, at the same time, I think what this does is allow him the scope and keeps him in control of uh, whatever process he, he wants to try and introduce. And so that doesn't mean there aren't other problems looming, especially with the, the virus crisis and the economic slowdown that this mentioned. But at least that's why I see as the uh, main motivation behind the constitutional reforms now. So would you agree that it was a clever trick and that it was played well and until the epidemic struck? Actually, Putin looked uh, pretty good, reconsolidated legitimacy and power. Yeah, I mean, the odds seem to be strongly in the favor of uh, this, uh, like you say, trick working in the sense that not a whole lot of time was left to uh, any forces that might want to use this opportunity to mobilize against the Kremlin. His support was doing relatively well, certainly by comparison with any alternative that somebody might envision. And I think in that sense, it, it seemed to be all working until the virus up upset things. And so I think that opens up a lot more uncertainty in the process. Thank you. I would like now to turn to Ben, and since we're focused on the zeroing amendment, not on all other amendments that were included in the constitutional reform, my question to you is, do you think that actually Putin was planning the zeroing all along? And if so, why it had to be so theatrical? With Valentina Tereshkova, the woman astronaut, coming up with this amendment at the last moment. Thanks, Masha. Um, it's the type of question that I think we could debate until the end of Was it the case that Putin was planning this all along, right from the 15th of January, when he made his address to the Federal Assembly, which kicked off this constitutional reform project? And I think there are bits of conflicting evidence for both sides. Some of the, I think, most compelling evidence for the proposition that the zeroing plan was something that the Kremlin had settled on right from the start was the centrality placed on the nation. I think given what that says about the significance of constitutional changes and the need for popular endorsement, it seems to fit with something as significant as the zeroing amendment, whereas it's more tricky to argue that a nationwide vote would be necessary for the other changes that have been introduced as part of this reform cycle. Another bit of evidence that struck me was something Putin said on the 4th of February when he made a visit to Cheropovets and spoke to uh, some members of civil society. One of those present, a teacher, said that in the nationwide vote, if the constitutional reforms were adopted, then that should just be taken as a vote of support for Putin and that he could just stay on as president for another six years and they didn't in fact need to hold an election. Putin's response to that and the words he used surprised me at the time because he said something to the effect that that wouldn't work and that an alternative arrangement was needed to elect the head of state. He did not mention that he was ineligible to run for the presidency in 2024. So the vagueness with which Putin answered the question made me and I think a few other analysts pause and think whether something else was going on. And reading back, of course, we have 2020 vision and we can read into that a sign that Putin was planning. And that is the way that he was going to get round the 2024 question when he hadn't made a clear statement up to that point. But I think looking back, that maybe is one sign that there was thinking within the Kremlin uh, that the zeroing amendment was going to take place. You mentioned uh, why did it have to be so theatrical? Well, this all feeds into the idea that this can't just be regarded as some type of self-interested move from Putin. 
it has to have a veneer of public legitimacy of an idea that's presented by a venerable member of Russian society, as you mentioned, Valentina Tereshkova. And in turn, she said that it was an idea that was mentioned to her on multiple occasions by quote-unquote everyday Russian citizens. So the idea is that this is supposed to be uh, the Russian people pleading for Putin to stay on as, uh, as president to guide them through uh, a moment of turbulence. So I think that's one of the reasons why the amendment was proposed this way. What I would say, though, is that some of the theatrics seemed a bit half-hearted. The whole episode in the State Duma on the 10th of March was a bit like unrehearsed amateur dramatics. Few would really fall for the idea that Tereshkova was making an impromptu speech to propose the constitutional zeroing amendment. And in his response to Tereshkova, Vyacheslav Volodin, the Speaker of the State Duma, didn't even seem to invest in the idea that it was meant to seem as though this was catching everybody by surprise. And of course, a few hours later, Putin turns up to, quote unquote, begrudgingly accept the idea thrust on him by the people. So it's a sort of odd situation where, yes, it's theatrical. Yes, we can work out why it was theatrical. But some of the players didn't necessarily seem as well trained in the theatrical arts as maybe they should have been to pull this off. Nikolai, what do you think? So not every actor played as well as others, Ben says. But what do you think of this overall analysis that Ben has now suggested? Do you think the zeroing trick was planned since the very beginning and played out in the very end for whatever purpose? Uh, there are a lot of speculations about whether it uh, has been planned in advance, and uh, experts who were in favor of this idea uh, were saying that if it was so, then it has been planned by Putin personally, without uh, any good experts who could stage it in a better way. Uh, in my view, like in many other uh, Putin's decisions, he does have several options in his mind, several options on the table, and this was perhaps one of them, but I doubt that it was the major one uh, from the very beginning. And uh, in my view, uh, and uh, I, I do agree with Ben, uh, uh, initially the development of events uh, could uh, lead to uh, some other options, but uh, in a while I think Putin felt like uh, he is losing total control over what was going on and he came with the easiest and perhaps not very well prepared move. Nikolai, how fair do you think is the idea that actually um, the zeroing, the, the nullification uh, amendment, is the only thing that matters, that in fact we should be talking about essentially the same system, that the system has not changed because of what looks like a broad constitutional reform. And the only thing that matters is that Putin now has more authority, even more authority than before. If this, if the system is essentially the same, how would you describe the essential quality of this system? Uh, well, first of all, I would say that in my view, there are three different baskets where we can put amendments offered. And uh, the major one is connected with how to keep Putin uh, in power. And here, you are right, uh, this zeroing amendment uh, is uh, the symbol of uh, such a huge importance. But uh, there were several amendments aimed at uh, improving the system of management. And uh, I would not underestimate these uh, amendments, although 
in my view, they are leading to, well, uh, to wrong direction in the sense that in order to improve management, the Kremlin was thinking in terms of increasing centralization and uh, taking out of regions even those uh, negligent powers uh, they uh, did have according to the previous constitution. And the third basket uh, can be called uh, social oil. It was aimed in order to make everybody happy and to wholeheartedly support uh, the constitutional reform. But what we see now, I think it's very different from the plan, the initial plan. And uh, actually, we do uh, we should speak about uh, two different transformations. Transformation one initiated by Putin, which is over, I think. And uh, I would not think uh, that uh, the popular vote, uh, whether it uh, will take place uh, sooner or later, uh, will somehow influence the uh, general political situation. Uh, And transformation two, which is very different and uh, which is now the single game in town, it's transformation due to epidemics. And this transformation is absolutely not controlled by uh, Putin. And uh, I think its influence over the transformation of the system now is big, but uh, it will increase uh, day by day. But even the first transformation, I think it's very important to uh, have in mind that uh, the general idea of the first transformation is uh, was to increase powers of so-called great president, not uh, necessarily the concrete person of the president, but all institutions which are and should be totally controlled by him, including the uh, state council, including security council, presidential staff, and so on. And what is very dangerous, I think, now, it's the fact that Putin has been caught when he did jump. So the old system no more works. The new system, which is described by the new constitution, does not work as well. Political institutions are extremely weak, much weaker than they used to be before the transformation. And there are no persons who could somehow compensate for this weakness because the president himself looks very weak. And in the absence of him, uh, the great president cannot work as well. So we do not see, uh, amidst the epidemics, we do not see all these institutions which are directly controlled, directly connected to the president. Masha, if I might jump in just at that moment to follow up. Another a sort of third point that I could add to what I said about what evidence there might be that zeroing has been a serious option from the start relates to what Nikolai has already mentioned about the great presidency. So how we can see a beefing up of presidential powers in the new constitution. If we look at that, then that's also a suggestion that maybe from the start, Putin was thinking that he wanted to be the one to take up these new powers. Of course, even if Putin doesn't plan to run for re-election in 2024, he'll still be able to use these new powers once they come into force and for the remainder of his current presidential term, which runs until 2024. But I think we have to take seriously the idea that one of the reasons why there was this strengthening of presidential powers in the basket of constitutional reforms was precisely because Putin wanted to take advantage of them as president himself, including all the way possibly to 2036. So that may be a bit of evidence that we can look at. And I agree wholeheartedly with Nikolai that when we're looking at this constitutional reform moment, we shouldn't just be focusing on the zeroing amendment. 
Another way of looking at it is to see the reform package and other announced changes as an onion containing lots of different layers. There are some constitutional elements, but there are also some non-constitutional elements, including the boost to maternity capital, which is clearly a move that's aimed at trying to win the support of Russian citizens by putting more money in the pockets of young families. The Kremlin's clearly conscious of the need to revitalise support for the regime, particularly following the deeply unpopular pension reform of 2018. We can also look at the PR campaign that was being carried out by the Kremlin, including the slick set of TV interviews with Putin for TASS, highlighting his achievements during 20 years in power. One hypothesis might be that all of these other elements of the constitutional reform project and associated changes are just providing a smokescreen for the zeroing amendment, and that it was always planned as the main objective from the very start. Um, it might be the case that the Zeroing Amendment was planned all along, but I don't think we should neglect these other elements of the Constitutional Reform Project. Some of them are clearly important in and of themselves. Some of the changes might be aimed at trying to win over the support of people who are sceptical of the Kremlin's plans, and that means we have to be nuanced and appreciative of the complexity of what's going on here, rather than just seeing it as all being about zeroing. It's interesting also to focus on one of the elements of the constitutional reform package, and that's the concept of a quote-unquote unified system of public authority. This is a concept that isn't mentioned in the existing text of the constitution, and it provides, in my view, a good example of what the Kremlin was planning before the coronavirus pandemic, and what it's having to do now in the harsh reality of an epidemiological crisis. So according to this unified system of public authority, there'll be a further centralisation of power within Russia, and that combines two elements. The first relates to the very top of Russia's political governance structure, and the idea that the president, now on a more formal basis, will exert quote-unquote general leadership of the government. Russia famously has a dual executive system, that is, it has both a head of state and a head of government, and they're two different people. But by introducing this language of the president having general leadership over the government, you have an even greater formal sense that the president really is at the top of the pyramid of power, even though actually in practice that hasn't been in question for a while in Russia. The second element to this concept of a unified system of public authority relates to local self-government. Legally speaking, local self-government isn't actually a part of the state in Russia. But according to changes introduced in Putin's constitutional reform law, members of the state, that is members of the executive, both at the federal level and the regional level, will be able to hire and fire members of local self-government. And that's a really curious mix, whereby local self-government is supposed to be separate from the state, and yet state actors will be able to appoint and remove people. I think that points to the Kremlin wanting to further centralise control over regions and over localities, while still paying lip service to the independence of local government. That's what it was planning before coronavirus, but now that Russia's confronting the pandemic, we see really an opposite tendency. Rather than Putin calling all of the shots, we've seen other actors playing a prominent role, including Moscow Mayor Sergei Sabyanin and Prime Minister Mikhail Mishustin. In fact, Putin has been conspicuous by his absence at times, as well as what some see as his lack of clear direction to lower-level officials. When it comes to regions and localities, they're being told by the censor to show initiative to respond to varying realities on the ground, which, in a sense, is a sort of quasi-decentralisation. That might be attractive for Putin in order to protect himself from criticism as the pandemic develops, but it certainly doesn't fit neatly with the picture of a great president as envisaged in the constitutional reforms. Of course, we don't know whether this is something that will outlast the pandemic. 
But it's a vivid demonstration, to me at least, of how the Kremlin's plans for constitutional reform have been frustrated by the pandemic, beyond more obvious things like the need to postpone the nationwide vote from the 22nd of April. And it might have implications for what will happen to the constitutional reform in the short to medium term. It could be that if the pandemic ends up being as problematic as it looks as though it's going to be in Russia at the moment, after a period where political leaders in the country thought they could get by relatively unscarred, and if the economic problems associated with the fall in the oil price and the fall in the value of the ruble continue, then when it comes to actually holding the nationwide vote on these changes, Putin could be in a really tricky position when trying to get the result he needs in order to make these changes come into force. And I think that gets at the possibility that this is a really odd constitutional reform moment, where these novelties could be, in a sense, stillborn. That is, they were created for a world that just no longer exists. And it's going to be interesting to see how they work in a new post-pandemic reality. Thank you. Nikolai, how would you respond to that? Being referred to the process of dealing with the COVID epidemic as a quasi-decentralization, talking about how Putin seems to be now delegating authority to um, regional leaders. Some experts refer to it as re-federalization by default. So I would like you to address this question. And also, if we're talking about whether Putin has become stronger or weaker, what do you think the elites think at this point? Do the elites regard Putin as a weakening leader or a leader that actually has uh, the same firm grip on power? Thanks. Thanks, Marsha. First of all, I would disagree with the very idea of uh, federalization by default, which is expressed by some experts. So there is lack of effective management at the center and uh, uh, an attempt uh, to make regions and uh, governors being responsible for dealing with uh, epidemic. But uh, I think this is a trap. At first, Putin and the Kremlin did replace those governors who could be in a position to lead efforts of regional elites by those guys who came from Moscow, uh, so-called technocrats or managers without any experience in dealing with elites in this particular region. And now they're saying that, well, these guys should lead uh, the fight against coronavirus. First of all, I would say that responsibility and those declarative powers uh, the Kremlin gave them is not followed by giving them enough financial, administrative and political levers. And so far, we do see what is going on in Moscow, where the situation, I think, is in terms of management, in terms of equipment, in terms of financial might, is better than anywhere in the uh, state. But uh, so far, there are no signs of very effective dealing with coronavirus. In regions, it could be, and it is already much more difficult. And uh, in, in my view, if to speak about elites, first of all, one should mention that on the eve of the constitutional reform, Putin did weaken all elites, including the Federal Assembly, including judiciary and the Constitutional Court in particular, including procuracy. And this is another very interesting subject we are uh, focused on with Ben now, including, uh, including governors and uh, even even the government. 
And there were different ways to do this. But now it appears that the country is faced by a huge challenge at a time when, well, uh, there is only one center for decision-making. And uh, even if some powers are transferred, uh, transferred somewhere else, we do see lack of any kind of uh, teamwork even at uh, the center, not to speak about lack, if not the absence of so-called vertical chain of command. We do not see any uh, really effective efforts uh, made at the regional level. And it looks like Putin has uh, got into the trap when uh, elites do totally depend uh, from him. But uh, at the same time, he depends now in a very essential way from these weakened uh, elites, especially from regional elites, not to speak about elites at the center. And what we see now, I would say, is a kind of a paralysis of power at the center when all agencies which should fight against the epidemic, like Ministry of Emergencies, are almost uh, absent, uh, Security Council and so on. But B, we do see lack of any effective connection between the central and uh, regional level not to speak about regional level in general. So far, it's too early to make any conclusions, but I think that elites are extremely dependent from the center, and due to political repressions practiced last uh, several years, they are afraid of making any moves. And by the way, I would attract your attention to the fact that uh, law enforcement agencies are continuing moving in direction of uh, putting more and more pressure onto regional elites. So at the time of this huge war against coronavirus, they are still moving in the same direction, threatening regional elites and listen to Putin. He is threatening governors as well, uh, speaking about the fact that they will be punished not only in administrative way if doing something wrong. So. This shows, in my view, that there is no effective team at all, and uh, authorities, the government, use very counterproductive ways uh, to make uh, these teams to work better. Henry, what would you say to that? What Nikolai has just described is uh, a very grim picture for Putin. Putin in a trap, uh, the system paralyzed, governance very inefficient. What does this mean for Putin in the longer run, if you agree with this analysis? Or maybe uh, actually the system is not as badly inefficient as Nikolai has just described. What do you think about it? Yeah, that's a, a, a big political question. I think one thing that I would add would just be that, uh, you know, if anyone's star seems to be rising during this time, it might be Moscow Mayor Sabianets just because uh, with Putin kind of laying low, relatively speaking, uh, in terms of you know taking the leadership and pushing for concrete policies and leaving a lot up to the regional leaders, uh, you know, somebody like Sabianin has a chance to shine. And so you know, we'll have to see how things are ultimately handled, right? So it's, it's a chance uh, for them to become you know, even bigger stars on the national arena than they had been before. Um, and certainly at home if they do well, but if they do poorly, um, they're going to have big problems. And I think, as Nikolai said, part of the problem with a lot of the, you know, facing a lot of the other regional leaders outside Moscow is just uh, you know, they, they have far fewer resources uh, with which to uh, combat uh, the current crisis. So I think that is one risk that Putin takes by, 
kind of pushing or, or you know seeding the, the the profile on kind of these bad news issues to uh, you know to Sabianin, uh, who's kind of taken the lead on that, and others is that it does create a chance for um, other politicians to rise and establish themselves as possible alternatives to Putin, uh, something that hadn't really existed at all, uh, you know, to a significant extent before uh, the, the 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 crisis uh, broke out. Um, on the other hand, uh, as, as as was mentioned, I mean, by stepping back a little bit, uh, you know, Putin does retain the possibility of kind of emerging from the crisis, saying, "Okay, well, everybody else messed this up, uh, and so you know, really, you know, I'm still the only alternative out there. You know, who else are you going to vote for? You know, if you, if you want any any kind of hope of of recovering in the future, so." You know, I mean, the, the whole situation is extremely uncertain um, you know, because you have the economic crisis. We don't know how bad that's going to be. We know it's going to be bad. We don't know yet how bad the, the disease itself is going to hit the population. It's already uh, bad, uh, but it could get a lot, lot worse. Um, and we just don't know how blame is ultimately going to be uh, assigned. If Putin has taken the, the bet, it seems like, uh, to the extent that's his political, of uh, it's better to kind of ride it out, letting others decisions that it is to be kind of part of with, uh, you know, taking the strong initiative uh, oneself. Well, I guess we've reached a point, there's always a point like that in discussions about Russia, where it's too early to make conclusions. This may be even more true now that the COVID epidemic is making everything really uncertain. So I hope there will be another chance to discuss these issues with you. Thank you all for the discussion and for your opinions.